Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with my favorite and only co-host, <laughs> Ellen McGirt. Oh, Alan, thank you very much. I take it. I love those introductions. And hello, everyone. I hope everyone's doing well, and I really do mean that. Now, Ellen, I know you've been spending a lot of time in Florida lately, right? I have been. It's been a real rough patch. I've been taking care of my elderly mom, who's not as healthy as we would like. That's my new reality, and I'm really struggling with some of the decisions around her care. So that's been very much top of mind for me. Well, today's guest is relevant to your situation. His name is Marlo Hernandez. He's CEO of Cano Health. That's a smaller company than the ones we usually cover. It's principally a primary care provider that specializes in senior care. The majority of their patients are in South Florida. And the reason we invited Marlo on is while many of his patients live in lower income neighborhoods, during the pandemic, they were able to achieve results showing that their uh, COVID-19 mortality was 60% lower than comparable senior populations throughout Florida. It's really amazing. And what's fascinating is how they did it. You, you think, oh, there must have been some magic pill that enabled them to have results 60% better than comparable neighborhoods. But that's not the answer. And you're going to have to stay tuned to hear it. You know, I'm so happy uh, he's here. You're really describing the neighborhood that my mom and I are in right now. And I've seen their health fans around the cul-de-sac in her little retirement village. So I know they're out here doing the work and I see some very happy people greeting them. I'm very excited excited to learn more about him. Dr. Hernandez. Well, thank you so much. So appreciative of uh, you inviting me on, on your show and, and discussing this important topic. So tell us how you did it. 60% below the, the uh, mortality rates for the general senior population. How did you do it? Well, there is no silver bullet in healthcare, but what you do have is a great inefficiency in the system. The system today is transactional in nature. It's episodic sick care. I'm going to the doctor when I feel I'm particularly sick. I'm not getting this proactive relational care. And what that results in, chronic conditions that are not managed appropriately. So simply put, the way that we were able to achieve better COVID-19 outcomes are the same ways that we've been for years able to reduce mortality among our mostly senior underserved populations, which is by controlling chronic conditions better, by providing better access, quality, and wellness. And what we mean by that is, well, you can come to us. Uh, we'll make sure to provide transportation. We'll give you telehealth. Uh, we'll do some home services. It's proactive in nature. We don't need you to call us. We're going to call you. We call our members on a monthly basis. The average members come see us about 20 times per year. And we also have a whole host of uh, wellness programs offering from exercise classes to nutrition classes uh, to ancillary services like physiotherapy and optometry and behavioral health. And we partner with dental and many other healthcare providers. So for COVID specific, we use our population health platform to um, design the optimal treatment program. And when you did have symptoms or 
you were at risk for getting COVID, we intervened and we got you the pulse oximeter. We, we got you the oxygen as necessary. We put you on those anti-inflammatories like steroids um, at the appropriate time and then hospitalized you early. We actually had more hospitalizations than the other comparable population in Florida, yet significantly lower mortality because it's not just about, well, let's not hospitalize patients, but you need to hospitalize them early and appropriately. And that's simplistically how you get better outcomes. I am recalling the last time I was a full-time healthcare reporter, which was way back in 2006, when I was studying a transformation at the Cleveland Clinic, where I know you spent some time, um, when Medicare started reimbursing for or linking reimbursements to patient satisfaction scores. And that kicked off in my in, in their minds and in my mind an understanding of what it meant to value wellness in, in the senior population because you had the data and you were able to build some services around that. So I'm curious as to how this plays out in your business model with the senior population. Is the Medicare and Medicaid an important piece of this? And that's a long way of saying, why isn't, why isn't this working everywhere else too? <laughs> yeah. Uh, why isn't everybody well. doing it? <laughs> it is um, a great question, the question perhaps, and it has a, a complex answer, but I'll try to give you as simple of an answer as possible. The problem that we have is that we are sort of addicted to this fee-for-service reimbursement model. The way that the system is designed is that we pay for the volume of services, irrespective of outcome. And we think somehow that just getting the volume of services will improve healthcare outcomes, but we know that it's simply not the case. As a country, we spend more per capita than any country in the world, yet don't have any better outcomes, in some cases worse outcomes. And it's because we're incentivizing the wrong thing. We're incentivizing the delivery of products and services rather than the delivery of better patient outcomes. We need better quality. We need better experience and we need to reduce costs. That's how healthcare can work for everyone. And we haven't been able to do that when the framework of the system we operate does not reward care coordination, does not differentiate those better performing providers from those who don't do as good enough of a job. And so when I'm spending 15 minutes with the patient and I'm getting paid exactly the same and what happens after that patient leaves the exam room, whether they can afford the medicine, whether they actually go to their referral, where, whether I get those records, uh, whether they understand their treatment uh, approach, um, whether I can provide the after hours services to intervene early, none of that is typically part of the healthcare model. The only part is that one component of an entire delivery system and is generally, and here's the key, misaligned with the patient. The sicker the patient is, the more profitable the patient is. And then too often patients are treated like monetizing events. And as I was going through school, that just you know hit me right at the heart and it said, there must be a better way. And instinctually we went to, hey, it's a capitated model. Let's flip it on its head. We get paid a flat fee per patient per month and we're incentivized to keep them healthy rather than, well, I've got to 
do this. I'm going to deploy this widget. I'm going to bill for more services, which is what's still happening in the status quo. And until we change that status quo, we're not going to get a fundamental change and improvement because we have reached that efficiency frontier under a volume or fee-for-service system. But Marlo, that raises the big question for this conversation because you're operating in that same fee-for-service payment plan. You're serving Medicare and Medicaid uh, patients, yet you have a capitated model. You charge them one price. You deliver them services, whether Medicare will reimburse you or not. Can you make that work financially? Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you look at the healthcare dollar, we as a country spend about 6% in primary care and prevention, 6% of the healthcare dollars, six cents. At Cano Health, we spend about 12%. So we are investing out of our own pocket more in primary care, holistic prevention. That decreases downstream costs. And here's the other statistic, about 20 cents of the healthcare dollar, 20% is wasted, unnecessary care duplicate care, um, fraud, abuse, all of these things that are happening. And so when rather than incentivizing a provider, aligning that provider and payer with the outcome, you're just giving them a flat fee, um, you are paying them for volume, you are going to get what you pay for, volume, rather than quality. In our model, you're giving us that flat fee. And so we're going to invest upfront and by definition, high value care, reducing that 20% down very significantly, going to our bottom line, we're a very profitable company, and then that allows us to reinvest that into our business, into continuing to improve our national care platform. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about relationships, relationships between doctors and their staff and nurses and their patients and all of that. And one of the hallmarks of the old model, the ancient model, is the hero doctor or, you know, the the people who spend so much time on diagnostician work and working the technology of healthcare and not the relationships. So I was curious, one, if um, your healthcare workers have had better outcomes and if you're using different variables to screen for employees, like the people who are naturally interested in building relationships that are the foundation of healthcare instead of being swoop in, swoop out heroes? Well, you know, that, that is such a great question because at the heart of what we do are really two things, which is our mission, improve quality of care and forge lifelong bonds. I was taught very early in medical school that nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And we've all had the experience and, and healthcare professionals are heroes. And we need a better system where they can practice their craft, uh, obtain that professional fulfillment of seeing their patients get better. And that's where we're failing. We have all this inefficiencies that are built into the system. And again, think about it, 6% into primary care and prevention. How much of it goes not to doctors, nurses, those directly providing the care, but to all that inefficiency that is embedded in this system. But yes, we focus on both components because if you're great at what you do, yet don't have that bedside manner, patients are not going to trust you. They're not going to open up to you. You're not going to be as effective. And you could be a phenomenal person and build those relationships. But if you don't know your craft, you're not going to be able to help many people. Um, so 
we have programs to ensure both. Um, our centers are not just medical centers, they're centers of the community. And so we've got great um, programs for continuing medical education. Dr. Richard Aguilar, our chief clinical officer, best in the country, my view, uh, he has such an incredible program for keeping our doctors up to date and continuing to develop new and better protocols for treating our patients. At the same time, we have all these wellness and social services at our clinics. So I like to say that we treat as much hypertensions, diabetes, the common flu, as we do loneliness, um, health illiteracy, um, lack uh, of you know exercise, poor diet habits. So we're doing it all because I truly believe, we truly believe that with that team approach, with making sure that those two components are served, we as professionals are a lot more effective of what they do. And I tell our people all the times at our wellness centers, our social service coordinators, uh, our, our people that are doing referrals work, uh, the, the people that are doing medical records that are helping with our, our tech systems and population health platform, you are critical in what we do. And I can't do half as good a job without you. You know, Marlo, one of the things that makes your results so impressive is that you are doing it in really disadvantaged neighborhoods. And we hear so much these days about the social determinants of health. You know, people say your zip code is a bigger determinant of your health outcome than your genetic code, uh, that somehow because you live in these neighborhoods, you're not going to have good health outcomes. You're disproving that, aren't you? Yes. And that's the short answer. I would tell you uh, that you go through any American city and you can clearly draw a line. And that line would be that proverbial line of the haves and haves nots, where you see the higher per capita income and the higher availability and quality of healthcare services and that line of the lower per capita income and the higher amputation rates, the higher mortality, uh, the, the lower um, the chance of pursuing your passions. And so it is right um, that when you do an analysis of our country and of our cities, you can identify and correlate those social determinants of health. It is true you have less access to medical care, long wait times, and it is true you're not going to have that concierge medicine and you're not going to have as much knowledge of, of the system or affordability of the system. And it is true that you're going to have you know, poor exercise and dietary habits uh, for various uh, reasons, including economic. And we are working to solve that. And we have shown that if you invest part of that healthcare dollar, and that's how we get beyond that 6% to about that 12 it's not just, hey, more intensive traditional primary care services. You know, there's just so many EKGs that you can do on a population, right? <laughs> um, it is about actually making those investments in those other components of healthcare that we've been talking about that are so essential and that can now put everybody on an equal playing field, if not a little bit better. And I'm very proud that all patients, and they do tend to um, over-index minorities, but the needs of American seniors are national in scope. 
we're talking about underserved patients first, but it's really a model for, for our country and for the next generations. I'm here with Joe Yukazaglu, who is CEO of Deloitte US and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Joe, thanks for being with us and thanks for your support. Pleasure to be here. So Joe, during the pandemic, we saw a real shift in how people view mental health and well-being and how they incorporate it into their daily lives. People were under such stress learning to work from home, but also dealing with the challenges of caregiving and family life. Is this shift going to mean a reset in how we approach mental health and well-being overall? Alan, this has absolutely been one of the biggest themes coming out of the last couple of years, the impact of the pandemic, isolation, uncertainty, fear on people's mental health. And in some ways, it's caused the topic to be much more openly discussed for people to come forward, get the help and the resources they need. And that's a real sea change and one that we need to sustain. So what's your advice to leaders who are trying to figure out how to deal with that sea change? This is an area where companies can do so much good, providing the necessary support, access for counseling, tools to help drive overall well-being. And increasingly, you're gonna see this become a bigger component of people deciding what type of organization they wanna work at. And the tone has to be set at the top. Continuous reinforcement by leaders acknowledging the challenges, reinforcing support for their people, and supporting new work models that contribute to well-being. Thank you, Joe. Before we hit our, our lightning round, I wouldn't want to miss the opportunity to talk a little bit about your story and how you got here, and particularly when you knew that this was your mission. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, first, medicine has been my mission since when, as a child, probably three or four years old, I promised my grandmother that I would become a doctor to heal her when I was in Cuba. And I was incredibly blessed to immigrate uh, as I was about to turn nine to the United States, to Miami, and um, got a phenomenal education. My parents worked extremely hard to ensure that I had that. And then around 2008, 2009, the economy took a turn for, for the worst hitting uh, communities like the one that I lived in particularly hard. And this is the time pre um, ACA, Obamacare, this is the time pre expansions on Medicaid, pre the time that um, there was more penetration on Medicare advantage. And so you had half the population or more without health insurance or um, that were underinsured and that was preventing them and, and their families uh, from being able to work, uh, provide, pursue their passions. And that was really the inspiration for Cano Health. That and my mother, Dr. Lourdes Cano, is a dentist from Cuba, worked extremely hard. Her dedication to her patients is at the, the DNA of our healthcare delivery uh, today. But that was really the, the, the two big inspirations uh, for Cano. And I have a very personal one for becoming a physician. And our original model was uh, something that uh, everyone could afford $30 a month. You, you come in, you know, get all the, the, the physical and, and healthcare you need and prescriptions and, and so on. Um, and uh, soon enough, we had thousands of patients coming uh, to, to see us. And as 
more patients became insured and more models became available, we were able to then serve our population through the plans rather than that direct model. Uh, Marlo, I need to ask you one more question before Ellen goes to her uh, lightning round. Apologies, we're now turning from health to finance. Sure. Uh, You took Cano Health public through a SPAC, a successful SPAC last summer at the height of the SPAC craze, merging with a, a company that's already trading on the market. Initially, it looked good, but then over the course of the last eight or nine months, you've lost about half of your value. And now you have one of your investors, Dan Loeb of the hedge fund Third Point, saying, this isn't working for me. I've lost half my money here. Sell. Sell to, a, sell to one of the big players. Get us a transaction price. I have two questions on, on that. One is, was it a mistake to do a SPAC transaction? And the other is, what do you say to Dan Loeb? Well, first, no, not a mistake. Uh, It allowed us to um, effectively access the capital markets, uh, grow um, to meet that accelerating demand for our services. And uh, I'm going from city to city. I'm getting the same story over and over again. You know, Cano has given me hope. Uh, Cano has relieved my pain. And thank you for everything uh, that you're doing. And when are you going to be able to serve, you know, my, my cousin, my, my mother, my grandma who lives in this city or that. So uh, we were originally, as you know, in our home state of Florida and Puerto Rico. Today, we're in eight states and um, going public and accessing the, the public markets, um, the great board uh, that we have played a crucial role in us being able to do that. And then second, um, we're always engaging with with our investors, in, including Dan Loeb at, at Third Point, and, and, and always you know looking at ways in which we can create long-term value for our shareholders. We're definitely focused on that. Um, we are seeing our, our growth accelerate and it's a very, very exciting time. So we will continue to engage um, and uh, do all the work to make sure that. (laughs) But will you sell? Will you sell? I I mean, I I assume part of the problem here is that the people who would want to buy you are people who are not doing it right and you are doing it right. But you tell me. As long as we can fulfill the mission, we're going to do what, you know, ultimately makes sense for our long-term shareholders, what's in the intrinsic value. But you're right. Uh, it is about um, sharing those values, you know, sharing that mission and that vision. You know, what, what we're doing is, is really special, um, is very personal, not just to me, to 4,000 of us, you know, working in a kennel, to a quarter million patients and their families. Um, and that is a responsibility, you know, that... Uh, transcends anything. That was pretty close to a hard no, but I guess if there's somebody out there who's doing it your way, you may, you may uh, consider it. Well, that really is the big question. And here's the big follow-up question. Are things starting to move in the right direction? Do you feel that this work is part of a trend in healthcare? It is, and they are, Ellen. And the reason uh, for that, <laughs> probably not something that uh, we want uh or are happy to see happen, but healthcare system is truly collapsing under its own weight. We can no longer to continue to afford th- this rising healthcare costs. We had about 5% of GDP that we were spending in the 1960s to about 20% of GDP now uh, in uh, the 20s. And 
when you have that dynamic, when you can no longer pass the cost on to patients, employers, and taxpayers, the systems must adapt and change. They can no longer just say, well, you know, I build X, I need to build X plus in to the next uh, year. Um, and so they're looking for solutions such as the one that we provide through Counter Panorama, our population health platform, in which they can improve their quality, improve their service metrics while controlling their costs. So it is happening, but because it's more of a, a, a voluntary, because the, the payers are evolving themselves, yet still with very large uh, budgets uh, that are not yet being cut, it's not happening fast enough, but it's definitely accelerating. So this season, we've been asking all of our guests to just give us quick answers, top of mind to some pressing pressing issues of the day. What's top of mind for you when you think about COVID? Certainly, the pandemic uh, is still something that uh, we have to um, take account of. Uh, we should not forget about it. COVID is a very dangerous virus. It has rewritten the books. Uh, and uh, we've got some great systems that give us daily metrics on our population. Thank, thank God we're in a good place today. We have treatments that are available. We have plentiful testing. We have vaccines that are very effective uh, and uh, very safe. Um, nevertheless, we could see another spike. It's still not endemic until we can truly predict it like we can generally predict the flu and, and other type of outbreaks. Um, we cannot really get comfortable and, and go back to normalcy. But I do believe we're in the beginning of the end. We're in the transition from pandemic to endemic phase. Uh, but uh, COVID, like uh, other you know, types of you know, public you know, health issues, are something that uh, we constantly measure and is certainly top of mind for us today. Top of mind when you think about the global economy. Oh, wow. Inflation uh, is a concern. The tight labor market, uh, those are concerns. The still COVID influences on supply chains, the, the lag times you know, for us to build you know, our capacity to serve more patients. And um, thankfully, we've been able to do that. Um, but um, uh, it is a challenging environment to you know, continue to um, offer the absolute best care to the most amount of people within the shortest period of time when you've got, you know, these, you know, global pressures. Um, I believe we've got a, an, an amazing team and uh, they're, they're doing a great job at um, and accomplishing all of the objectives. And, you know, we're obviously very bullish. Nevertheless, um, we have our work cut out, you know, for us. We all do. And then finally, what's top of mind for you? as you think about your development as a leader? I am a, a person uh, that, um, number one, um, takes um, personal responsibility for everything, including things that I can or I cannot control. Hey, I, I wish uh, that uh, you know, some of the spec overhang <laughs> didn't occur and uh, some investors weren't feeling that pain. Um, so uh, work you know, extra hard uh, to uh, continue to provide value for them as with all uh, stakeholders. Um, so from you know, a, a personal you know, perspective, uh, it, it's, it's really about you know, continuing to you know, build uh, the team uh, that um, across the country uh, can 
preserve what has always made Cano Health special, yet um, expand that and adapt that uh, to that local community. Marlo Hernandez, uh, inspiring story. Uh, Keep it up. Keep growing. Uh, We'll be watching and, and rooting for you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Alan. Thank you so much, Alan. Leadership Next is edited by Alexis Hout, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my wonderful colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producer, Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 